You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem, and I'm your host, Hanoch Teller. Last time we spoke about the founder of the modern Hebrew language, Eliezer ben Yehuda. Now we segue to another important personality, but first a reminder of the political situation and the reality. The Zionists were stuck. There did not seem to be too much to do but to wait, as it seemed that the Ottoman Empire was on its last legs and the Tsarist regime seemed to be in its death throes, although this did nothing to decrease anti-Semitism. Many young Jews in Russia believed that the solution to anti-Semitism and other evils would be the revolution, and they devoted themselves to this. To those that believed that their salvation was not the revolution, nor were they religiously inclined to accept their persecution as ordained, they sought emigration from Russia and left in large ways in 1905, 1906, 1907. The pogroms that followed the revolution in 1905 intensified this emigration even more. The majority traveled to America, which was still open to mass immigration. A small minority went to Palestine, and from 1882 to 1903 was what was later labeled the first Aliyah, the first ascent to Israel, and 25,000 Jews immigrated to the land of Israel. From 1904 to 1914 was the second Aliyah, the second ascent, and 40,000 immigrated. Many of those who arrived did not like what they saw, and as the expression went, they caught the same ship back. This expression, if I'm not mistaken, might even have been originated by Ben-Gurion himself. Those who arrived in the second Aliyah were witnesses to the horrors of the pogroms in Russia and the unwillingness of the authorities to intervene to save Jewish lives. Accordingly, there were few that were determined that in Palestine they would organize their own defense and a land that was basically lawless. In 1907, there was a historic meeting in Jaffa where Israel Shochat spoke about organization of self-defense that had been created in his own native town of Gomel. As a result, 10 young men decided to train themselves as guards for the issue for the early settlement, and by 1914, there were numbered 100 highly efficient armed men called Hashomer, which means the watchmen, and this was the tiny nucleus of what would become the future IDF, Israel Defense Forces, the Israeli army. We'll come back to this when we discuss the riots in Hebron and elsewhere. The decade preceding World War I marked the time of the second Aliyah from Eastern Europe to Israel. This immigration differed from the first Aliyah at the end of the 19th century in that the new immigrant was basically secular, socialist, idealistic, and zealous in his belief that he was not only building a new land, but was also creating a new Jew and a new nation. And you can only imagine how this concept of a new Jew resonated, other than the fact that it rhymed well, with the religious who were earlier inhabitants of the settlement. As Rabbi Berowine explains, there was a continuous and extreme effort to break with the old Jewish tradition and religious faith. This new wave of immigrants believed in exclusively Jewish labor and in the sanctity of labor. 
and created agricultural communes known as kibbutzim, which is plural for kibbutz, where everyone contributed according to their own abilities and everyone received provisions according to their own individual needs, such as Deganya was the first kibbutz of the labor Zionistic movement. Kibbutz, again plural, would be kibbutzim, is named for a collective community based primarily on socialistic ideals, and it's rooted in agricultural work. It became an iconic institution in Israel's first decades. The image of Jews resettling the land was largely the product of the image of the Russian writer and ideal, an ideal, ideal, ideologue, A.D. Gordon. There was to be no private property, and even the privacy of the family was submerged in collective living. living. Believe it or not, even the children were taken out of their home and put into, even the babies were taken out of the home and put in a collective home for children. And these kibbutzim, again, the Ganya in Charod, Givat Brenner, Nachalal, and other communal settlements were built with their sweat and their blood. And what they did was, with tremendous work and dedication, they drained the swamps, they planted eucalyptus trees to prevent the swamps to return, rocks were cleared, barren land was plowed, and grudgingly, the soil began to respond to the efforts of the new tenants. But with the immigration of the Jews came Arab nationalism, using the description for the first time, quote, Palestinian. Earlier we explained how that term originates. By the outbreak of World War I, the Arab nationalists realized that the new Jewish immigrants were themselves nationalists. And since two nationalisms laid claim to the very same land, this had the makings of a tinderbox. Tinderboxes have a nasty habit of exploding. So what to do? So, one story I once saw was, the Israelis and the Arabs realized that if they continued to fight, they'd end up destroying each other and destroying the whole world. So they decided to settle their dispute with the ancient practice of the duel, the duel of two, like David and Goliath. And this duel, however, would be a dogfight. And so the negotiations were hammered out, and each side agreed that they would take five years to develop the best fighting dog that they could. The dog that won that fight would earn the right that his side would be able to rule all the disputed areas, and the losing side would lay down their arms for good. So what did the Arabs do? They found the meanest, biggest, strongest, roughest Dobermans and Rottweilers in the whole world. They bred them together. They crossed their offsprings with the meanest Siberian wolves. They selected only the biggest and strongest puppy from each litter fed it the most aggressive meat, and killed all the other puppies. They used steroids, they used trainers, and they created the perfect, meanest killing machine. After five years were up, they could only keep this dog in, behind steel bars and enforced concrete. Only expert trainers could handle this incredibly nasty and ferocious beast. When the day of the big fight came, this really, showed, this really showed up with a very strange-looking animal. It was a Dachshund that was 10 feet long. Everyone in the dogfight arena felt sorry for the Israelis. No one thought that this weird, bizarre, odd-looking animal stood a chance against this growling beast over there in the Arab camp. The bookies took one look, and they predicted that the Arab dog would win in less than a minute. So... Meanwhile, the whole stadium is rocking from this Arab dog, which has this ferocious breath, which is assaulting everyone there. 
and there's fire coming out of his nostrils. The heat is intense, and the place is shaking from that dog inside. And they finally, they open up the cages, and the Dachshund slowly waddles out to the center of the ring. Then the Arab dog leaps from its cage and charges this giant wiener dog. He got one in, within one inch of the Israeli dog, and the Dachshund opened its mouth, and he swallowed the Arab beast whole in one bite. There was nothing left but a small puff of the Arab killer's dog's tail floating to the ground. People went out, let out this really low, low whistle. The bookies and the media personnel let out a collective gasp of disbelief and incredible incredulity and surprise. And then, with their heads bowed low, the Arabs approached the Israelis, muttering, shaking their heads, and they said, Okay, okay, you win, fair and square. But we can't understand it. How could it be? Our top scientists and our breeders worked for five long years with the meanest, the biggest Dobermans, Rottweilers, Siberian wolves, and they created this killing machine in a dog. This really responded well. Ay, 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 ay. For five years, we had a team of Jewish plastic surgeons in Boca Raton working on making an alligator look like a Dachshund. And a distinction should be made. And the distinction is that the Jewish nation in Palestine was made up of people that volunteered to be a nation returning to its native soil. They had undergone great hardships, and they were animated by a common, conscious, passionate purpose. There was nothing equivalent to that on the other side. The Zionists did not, enter Pal did not encounter a Palestinian nation that only came to be later as a response to Zionism. And this also is like an anecdote I once saw that the competition between the two who were, who would be the first, who was the first one there, and each one competed to, who would have the right to the land. So the anecdote I saw was that there was a opening in a college, and they were looking for a new teacher to be the new professor, and they put advertisements in all the papers, and two men who lived quite a distance from the college applied for the job, and they had to have an interview and give a performance, so they were housed, since they came out of town, in a local hotel, and they had adjoining rooms in the local hotel. Now, one of the professors, who was really determined to get this job, and he was a very organized person, he set himself up into the room, and he made himself a mock shift podium, and a stentorian voice to began his lecture, very articulate, going through each and every point. Little did he know that on the other side of the wall, listening attentively, was the other person, the candidate for the job. And after he finished his lecture, he said it again, and repeated it again. And the fellow on the other side got it cold. The next day, yeah, 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 yeah. Both of these gentlemen showed up for their interview. And as luck would have it, the one who had heard the lecture from the first one was asked to speak first. And he related the entire lecture, which he'd heard the night before and had been repeated for him several times. And he said it very well. And the fun whose talk it was was bewildered. How could it be that his lecture, which he worked so hard on, was being said by this guy, word for word, until he finally understood. And when he finished, he said, the first guy finished, it was now time for the person whose talk had been given without his permission. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I think we heard a spectacular lecture. It was articulate. It was innovative. It was intriguing. It was sensitive. And I think what I should do is repeat what he said. And he repeated it verbatim, word for word. And the ladies and gentlemen there of the university were so impressed how he was able to remember verbatim what had been said. 
he must be a very, very clever person, hearing it only once, and very well connected material, and they gave him the job. So the man who would take Herzl's mantle was Chaim Weizmann. Dr. Chaim Weizmann was a scientist, a chemist. He was born in, a Russian, in Russia to an Orthodox Jewish family, one of 15. When Herzl announced the Uganda plan at the Zionist Congress, Weizmann joined the Russian delegation in walking out. But Weizmann noticed something very interesting. And then he had his aha moment. It was the British that were offering Uganda. In other words, the British were dialoguing with the Zionists as if they were a state power. And just like Herzl, Weizmann also recognized that Britain would be the Jews' best hope for a state. Then, in no coincidence, Weizmann decided to take a position in the University of Manchester, which seemed like a very odd place for a world-class scientist to be, instead, to be, instead of being in Paris or Berlin or anywhere else. But Weizmann had an agenda with Britain. His dream was not to be a world-class scientist, but to be an important Zionist, indeed, Herzl's successor. When World War I broke out, the Jews did not know who to support. There were Jews, and there were Jewish officers in the French army, in the German army, in the Russian army, in the British armies, and some of them were just simply killing each other. So in preparing this podcast, I looked up a book that I wrote. It's a small word after all. And there's a story there called Battle Cry. When I read it, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that I wrote so well. I, I mean, I, I didn't mean to say that. I mean, I didn't mean, I meant it. I didn't mean to say it. Well, since Teller from Jerusalem's budget cannot afford auto-editing, there it is for all of posterity, but it's really quite a well-written story about how in World War I, there was a British commander, meaning a captain in a trench. All of World War I was trench warfare. Can't say all of it, but a large portion from the North Sea all the way down to Switzerland was trench warfare. Two of the great advances of World War I over the Civil War were barbed wire and machine guns. So they would advance, get caught in the barbed wire, machine guns would mow them down, and it was like machine, it was like death factories. The, the front line would move forward, move backward a meter or two, and in the course of that happening, tens of thousands could be killed. So the story that we portrayed was that there was a British captain who was in charge of a large trench, and they were being mercilessly assaulted by the Germans using every trick in the book. And of course, they were also using gas canisters. Of course, in World War I, that was considered fair game. In World War II, the Germans used poison gas only for their hapless Jewish, uh, hapless Jewish uh, prisoners who were non-combatants. So in this story, a story which actually happened, this British captain who was a Jewish soldier was determined because he could see in his field glasses this German officer, and he was determined that he would personally would take him out. So when the Germans finally attacked, they had rehearsed their defense, and he charged, and he set his, fixed his bayonet, and he managed to come around and catch the German officer unawares, and he was about to impale him with his bayonet, and the German officer fell to the ground and said, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu, the prayer of Jewish martyrology, and the British officer said, Baruch Shem Kavod Ve'ed. Blessed be the name of his kingdom forever and spared the life of his enemy. Okay, so now 
Weizmann said that really there's no dilemma of who to support. The only side that we can support is that of England. He could not have known at the time that Britain would become a world empire and control over the Middle East. Now we're going to have to hold this point back in World War I and shift over to Palestine, where the Jews and indeed the Arabs are languishing under the Turks. Not only would the Turks not open the gates of Palestine to Jews, but the Jews who lived in Palestine suffered terribly under the Ottomans. The Turks expelled many leaders of the issue of the Jewish settlement, and they would not allow them to return to their homes in Israel. Jews were hanged on the walls of Jerusalem. Their property was confiscated. Hunger and disease were prevalent, and hundreds of Jews in Jerusalem died of starvation. The Turkish military commander, Jemal Pasha, expelled 18,000 Jews from Palestine, and all of those who were known to be active in the Zionist movement were also expelled, such as Arthur Rupin. Now, what was to be done? What could be done to thwart the oppression of the Turks? We're going to have to leave with this question, which we'll pick up next time, and I look forward to you joining us again in our next upcoming episode. Don't forget to subscribe and let others know about our podcast. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.